everybody, welcome to the Underswell Podcast. I'm Derek Sabori, I'm your host, here today tackling issues around sustainability, better business, conscious business, progress, innovation, etc. And uh, maybe a little education here and there. Today I want to dive into a topic that is sort of the umbrella topic, if you will, for um, I guess the reason that I do what I do, and maybe uh, for why you are even listening to this show. But a uh, over the weekend, or over the, during the week, I watched um, Chasing Coral. Don't know if you've seen it yet. It's on Netflix. It's a Netflix original. And I'm tying in an article here that was written on Fast Company. This article um, came out on July 14th, 2017, by Adele Peters. It's a quick read. I'm going to read through it, um, break down a little bit, and then kind of jump around onto some other things that are in the news, try to tie them together, put a little color on this um, on this article and the film and sort of some of the headlines that are in the news and see if we can tie this back into um, popular culture and our daily lives. So let's dive in real quick to this article by Adele Peters um, that says, Stop right now and watch Chasing Coral to understand what we've done to the ocean. So don't take that too literally. I want you to finish off with this uh, episode and then go watch it. But it says, if you think devastating effects of climate change aren't here yet, the new film from the makers of Chasing Ice will make it very clear how wrong you are. She says, let's start here. Underwater in the Great Barrier Reef, after weeks of filming coral, to manually build time lapses, helping gather 50 or 60 shots a day, and spending hours in the water, Zach Rago, R-A-G-O, scrawled a note and held it up to a fellow cameraman. Quote, this is the hardest dive I've ever had to do, he said. The The coral, alive when filming started, was dying as they watched. As he held a rotting piece of coral in his hand, the coral disintegrated. Rago, a self-described coral nerd, is featured in Chasing Coral, a mesmerizing, beautiful, and depressing documentary now on Netflix. Like Chasing Ice, a 2012 documentary from the same director, Jeff Orlowski, it tells the story of climate change by showing some of its unambiguous effects. Orlowski recognized that climate change, along with other environmental issues, has a huge communication challenge. I'll insert my words here. I agree with this completely. I think the way that we communicate on sustainability in general, and climate change in general, is overwhelming and hard to consume and sometimes even understand. So, great point out here by Adele. I'll continue with a quote. It says, With certain organizations and vested interests actively trying to confuse the public, it's certainly not a surprise that the public is confused, Orlowski tells Fast Company. The challenge here is not to combat that with more charts or graphs or science. How do we use visual storytelling, emotional storytelling, to be able to tell a better story so that the public sees it and understands it for themselves? As greenhouse gases trap heat on Earth, almost all of that heat has been absorbed by the oceans, raising it to temperatures that destroy coral. In 2016, because of warming oceans, the Great Barrier Reef suffered the biggest die-off of corals ever recorded. And in my words, if that's not um, alarming, if you didn't see that news last year, then I'm not sure what is, but um, that was an intense finding. The article continues to say, in one 400-mile section of the reef, an average of 67% of coral died. Summer die-offs are happening around the world. 
The film follows coral bleaching. This is a process where corals expel the algae living inside them when, it's, when it gets too hot, a step often followed by death in Australia after attempts to capture it elsewhere using custom camera rigs designed to stay underwater and automatically document day-to-day -day changes failed both because of technical problems and because they hadn't ha happened to pick locations that suffered extreme bleaching at that time. At one point, part of the team dives from a floating restaurant in the Great Barrier Reef while people on board drink and dance, oblivious to the unprecedented changes happening on the reef below them. That obliviousness is part of the point of the film. Most people are only vaguely aware of what's happening to coral reefs. The film explains both the basics of what reefs are, animals that can live as long as thousands of years, and what makes them unique. They host algae as tiny food factories to feed themselves as reefs. They create structures that act like cities for aquatic life. And what makes them important. As nurseries for a quarter of marine life, they're critical both for the natural world and for our food supply. And then it shows in agonizing detail how they die. The idea for the film came from Richard Vivers, a former ads ad exec who left an agency in London to become an underwater photographer in Australia. Over time, Vivers noticed that his favorite species, the weedy sea dragon, was disappearing, and he started to learn about the environmental challenges the ocean faces. He saw an advertising challenge. The public didn't know what was going on. He founded a nonprofit, now called the Ocean Agency, to try to address that, and launched a project to photograph Google Street-like images of the ocean. As he started to see and document coral bleaching, he also happened to see chasing ice, which followed a National Geographic photographer who documents melting icebergs. He saw the parallels to his own work and approached Orlowski about making a new film. Vivers became one of the subjects of the film. And I really like that. These are my words now, um, how Richard Vivers really came at this from an advertising and a real business world perspective and I think was a little bit humbled because in his world, problems could be fixed by... Um, marketing and sort of you know sort of telling a better story so if you've got a product that's not selling change the story um, buy some ad space and boom you know you can see results here I think he was a little bit more um, overwhelmed by the um, severity and the the grandiose nature of the problem here the article continues to say at first Orlowski was overwhelmed by the changes he saw in the ocean from acidification to ocean plastic to overfishing but he realized that coral bleaching could be the focus of the film. As I learned about that, learned what corals were and what story was being told by the corals, that's when I realized that this was a climate change story that was visual, he says. Rago, a young cameraman who happened to have a lifelong love of coral, helped tell the story emotionally. At one point in the film, researchers at a conference are brought to tears by the footage, but the film ends with optimism. It isn't too late to act and some positive change is already underway. I think the reality of the world is far worse than people think, and also far better than people think, says Orlowski. The state of the climate is far worse than the average person is aware of. The changes that we're seeing in the ocean, the projections, all of it is pretty dismal when you look at it. At the same time, the changes in technology and the advancing rate of the changes that we're seeing is happening so fast. That's not to say that all of coral reefs can't necessarily be saved. Even with the aggressive climate action now, many could be lost. Some researchers estimate that 90% of corals may be gone by 2050, even if global warming stopped now. And that 90% of corals gone by 2050 came from an independent um, story um, back in March of 2017. 
that says Earth has already lost half of its underwater rainforests over the last 30 years. That article was titled, More than 90% of the world's coral reefs will die by 2050. So this is no small um, subject. Let's see if I can go get back here to uh, where we are at. So uh, let's see. But the film, like I said, is also meant to be a call to action for protecting the rest of the world's ecosystems. What we're hoping to do is not lose other ecosystems down the line, Orlowski says. That's what I'm hopeful for. We're hopeful that we can prevent much worse damage in the future. That right now is inevitable unless we take action. That's where the optimism comes in. The article ends in saying that in addition to being on Netflix, the film is available for free educational screenings, and Orlowski is trying to reach as many people as possible. We're really wanting to get the film beyond the traditional audiences that watch this content, he says. For us, this was designed for everybody. It's designed for the average American, somebody who might be skeptical of the issue, and somebody who might not know much about the issue. Hopefully it can bring people into this story in a way that makes them realize and see and feel what's going on. So if you are struggling with the idea, want some visuals, this is obviously a great film, something worth diving into. Um, thanks for the article, Adele Peters and Fast Company. But another couple things are going on here. I think, you know, there was also reported, I saw it on CNN and other places, that there was a headline that the Earth is to warm 2 degrees Celsius by the end of this century, studies say. Um, there's a follow-up to An Inconvenient Truth, which was Al Gore's movie, Al Gore's documentary that came out years ago. That was one of the kind of turning points in my professional career was watching that movie. But... Um, it starts nationwide August 4th. It's called An Inconvenient Sequel, Truth to Power. So it's nice that this um, topic is sort of, I think, getting a push back out into the um, you know popular culture, but it's not always an easy topic. So what I did is I pulled up, I don't know if you guys use Vox, V-O-X.com. I love it. It's a, it's a great sort of, I think, sort of, middle of the road, explain the news type site. And they've got a, an article on here that was posted in June of 2017. It says nine questions about climate change you were too embarrassed to ask. So we'll go through a few of these things because our topic today is climate change. But I think most importantly, I think the tie in here is that climate change is actually something we can see. And I think Chasing Coral does a great job of that, of just sort of saying it's not this sort of um, you know, ephemeral, you know, sort of ethereal thing that we can't get our hands around. It's like, if we step back, look at the ocean, look at the oceans, look at our planet, we can start to see that something is going on. And this ties back to why it's so important for us that are in business um, to commit to a change and really be aware of the impacts that we have and do things better. So let's look at these nine questions about climate change. This was an article that was updated by Brad Plumer and Brian Resnick on Vox.com. It says, President Donald Trump um, earlier, it's, this says on Thursday, made his final call to put the United States out of the Paris Climate Agreement. The deal joined by all, two, all but two countries, which were Syrian and Nic Syria and Nicaragua, is a broad framework designed to nudge nations to prevent catastrophic climate change. I'll do another plug here for another movie, Before the Flood. If you haven't seen that movie, I would highly recommend that you watch that, Before the Flood. Um, an amazing look at the realities of climate change kind of all around the world. 
The article goes on and says climate change and global warming, not to mention the Paris Agreement, are often misconstrued issues. Here are the most basic answers to basic questions about them. Let's dive in. So, number one, what is the Paris Climate Agreement? This says the deal was hammered out over weeks of tense negotiations on December 2015 and weighs in at 31 pages. What it does is actually pretty simple. The backbone is the global target of keeping global average temperatures from rising 2 degrees Celsius, which is compared to temperatures that are pre-industrial revolution, by the end of the century. So beyond 2 degrees, it says that we risk dramatically higher seas, changes in weather patterns, food and water crises, crises, uh, crises and an overall more hostile world. Critics have argued that the 2 degree mark is arbitrary, or even too low, to make a difference, but it's a starting point a goal that before Paris, the world was on track to wildly miss. So back to chasing coral, as the oceans um, warm, as the weather warms and the oceans warm, then we start to see the coral bleaching, acidification, the loss of coral leads to the loss of life. And when the oceans die, most likely we die, is, is, a, is a quote that's I think was by Sylvia, Dr. Sylvia Earle, world famous um, oceanographer and marine biologist. Let's see, they've got some charts on here. The Paris Accord was voluntary to accomplish this two degree goal. The Accord states that the countries should strive to reach peak emissions as soon as possible. That would mean that we hit the highest levels that we've been at and then we go down from there. It says currently we're on track to hit peak emissions around 2030 or later, which will likely be too late. But the agreement doesn't detail exactly how these countries should do so. Instead, it, provide, it provides a framework for getting momentum going on greenhouse gas reduction with some oversight and accountability. For the US, the pledge involves 26 to 28% reductions by 2025. 195 countries have agreed to it, but there's also no defined punishment for breaking it. The idea is to create a culture of accountability. I like that phrase, that's my words, culture of accountability, and maybe some peer pressure to get countries to step up their climate game. In 2020, delegates are supposed to reconvene and provide updates about their emission pledges and report on how they're becoming more aggressive in accomplishing the two degree goal. It also states that it asks richer countries to help out poorer countries. It says the agreement matters because we absolutely need momentum on this issue. And that's something that I can personally agree with. So let's jump to number two. What is global warming? The world is getting hotter and humans are responsible. That's the short version, the article says. When people say global warming, they're typically referring to the rise in average temperature of the Earth's climate system since the late 19th century. Temperatures over land and ocean have gone up 0.8 Celsius or 1.4 degrees Fahrenheit on average in that span. So they've got a, um, a NASA chart here that shows um, temperatures, the global land and ocean temperature index kind of going up, 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 up from 1880 to 2000. Many people also use the term climate change to describe this rise in temperatures and the associated effects on the Earth's climate. But here it says the consensus among sci climate scientists is that this temperature increase has been driven primarily by the extra greenhouse gases that humans have put into the atmosphere since the Industrial Revolution. Greenhouse gases like carbon dioxide trap heat at the Earth's surface, preventing that heat from escaping back out into space too quickly. So when we burn coal or oil for energy or cut down forests and add even more carbon dioxide to the atmosphere, the planet warms up. I'll interject here real quick that that is something that's important too, is this idea of deforestation and forests being, um, you know, sort of devastated for our own 
needs, our, our um, society's needs, if it's not done responsibly, just when trees fall, they emit you know, carbon that has been sequestered in those trees. And so just by cutting down forests, there's a huge release of carbon back into the air. Not only that, but when those trees are alive, they're obviously capturing, um, capturing carbon and giving us back oxygen. So yes, do we need trees? Can we use trees? Are they renewable? Absolutely. But if it's done irresponsibly and we're cutting down at a pace that we can't keep up with and replenish quickly enough, then we're doing more damage um, than is necessary. Back to the article, it says global warming also refers to what scientists think will happen in the future if humans keep adding greenhouse gases to the atmosphere. A 2013 report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change projects that temperatures could rise at least 2 degrees Celsius, which is 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit, by the end of the century under many plausible scenarios, and possibly 4 degrees Celsius or more. Many experts consider 2 degrees of Celsius warming to be unacceptably high, increasing the risk of deadly heat waves, droughts, flooding, and extinctions. Rising temperatures will drive up global sea levels as the world's glaciers and ice sheets melt. Further global warming could affect everything from our ability to grow food to the spread of disease. So, definitely not a pretty picture um, in my words. And it says, avoiding drastic global warming would likely require a complete overhaul of our energy system. Fossil fuels currently provide 87% of the world's energy. To zero out emissions this century, we would have to replace most of that with low-carbon sources like wind, solar, nuclear, geothermal, or carbon capture. That's a staggering task, and there are huge technological and political hurdles standing in the way. As such, the, world na the world's nations have been slow to act on global warming. It's a genuinely difficult issue to tackle, and efforts to revamp the energy system often encounter heavy opposition. So... Number three, it says, how do we know global warming is real? The simplest way is through a temperature measurements. Agencies in the United States and Europe have independently analyzed historical temperature data and reached the same conclusion. The Earth's average surface temperature has risen roughly 0.8 degrees Celsius, or 1.4 degrees Fahrenheit, since the early 20th century. But that's not the only clue. Scientists have also noted that glaciers and ice sheets around the world are melting. And um, just recently, we had a big... Um, ice sheet break off, I believe, in the Antarctic. Um, scientists have also noted that glaciers and ice sheets around the world are melting. I just said that. Satellite observations since the 70s have shown warming in the lower atmosphere. There's more heat in the ocean, causing water to expand and sea levels to rise. Plants are, are flowering earlier in many parts of the world. There's humidity in the atmosphere. And here is a summary. They give a link to a summary from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. And it says these are all signs that the earth is really, really is getting warmer and that it's not just a glitch in the thermometers. That explains why climate scientists say things like warming in the climate system is unequivocal. They're really confident about this one. And number four says how do we know humans are causing global warming? Climate scientists say they are 95% certain that they are 95% certain that human influence has been the dominant cause of global warming since 1950. And a lot of these facts in this article have links that you can go to to learn more about them. I won't dive into those right now, but check out this article on your own if you want. It's uh, vox.com forward slash science and health. Um, it says they are about as sure as this as they are that cigarette smoking causes cancer. And why are they so confident? It's in part because they have a good grasp on how greenhouse gases warm the planet, in part because the theory fits the available evidence, and in part because al alternate theories have been ruled out. Here they are, broken down into six steps.
One, scientists have long known that greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, such as carbon dioxide and methane or water vapor, um, absorb certain frequencies of infrared radiation and scatter them back toward the Earth. These gases essentially prevent heat from escaping too quickly back into space, trapping that radiation at the surface and keeping the planet warm. Two, climate scientists also know that con concentrations of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere have grown significantly since the Industrial Revolution. Carbon dioxide has risen 40%. Methane has risen 150%. And I'll stop right there and inject that, interject that, um, that is the case too. Know that not all emissions are just carbon dioxide. There are a lot of, uh, there are multiple versions of greenhouse gases and methane is also one of them. And some are more deadly than others. So we can dive into that in a topic, but it's not always just CO2. So there are, there are other gases but through some relatively straightforward chemistry, scientists can trace these increases to human activities like burning oil, gas, and coal. Number three, so it stands to reason that more greenhouse gases would lead to more heat. And indeed, satellite measurements have shown that less infrared radiation is escaping out into space over time and instead returning to the Earth's surface. That's strong evidence that the greenhouse effect is increasing. And number four, there are other human fingerprints that suggest increased greenhouse gases are warming the planet. For instance, back in the 1960s, simple, simple climate models predicted that global warming caused by more carbon dioxide would lead to cooling in the upper atmosphere. And later satellite measurements confirmed exactly that. And they give a, a note, um, it says here are a few other similar predictions that have also been confirmed. Uh, 10 indicators of a human fingerprint on climate change, shrinking thermosphere, rising tropopause, less oxygen in the, in the air, um, nights warming faster than days, few other things here. Um, nice little chart. Let's see, number five. Meanwhile, climate scientists have ruled out other explanations for the rise in average temperatures over the past century. To take one example, solar activity can shift from year to year, affecting the Earth's climate. But satellite data shows that total solar irradiance has declined slightly in the past 35 years, even as the Earth has warmed. And number six, more recent calculations have shown that it's impossible to explain the temperature rise we've seen in the past century without taking the increase in carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases into account. Natural causes like the sun or volcanoes have an influence, but they're not sufficient by themselves. Ultimately, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or the IPCC, which has some amazing climate reports that have come out over the last um, you know, many years, have, they have concluded that most of the warming since 1951 has been due to human activities. The Earth's climate can certainly fluctuate from year to year due to natural forces, including oscillations in the Pacific Ocean, such as El Nino, but greenhouse gases are driving the larger upward trend in temperatures. Um, lots of great links in this report, lots of links to the IPCC's report, but they've got a lot of here and here and here links, so come check out this article if you want more. Um, the big point number five, how has global warming affected the world so far? So one of the, uh, these are the six questions we've got. Here's a list of ongoing changes that climate scientists have concluded are likely linked to global warming. Higher temperatures, every continent has warmed substantially since the 1950s. More hot days and fewer cold days on average, and the hot days are hotter. There are heavier storms. The world's atmosphere can hold more moisture as it warms. As a result, the overall number of heavier storms has likely increased since mid-century, particularly in North America and Europe. Heat waves are likely to become longer and more frequent. 
shrinking sea ice, the extent of sea ice in the Arctic has shrunk since 1979, the extent of it, by um, between 35 to 4% per decade on average. Summer sea ice has dwindled even more rapidly. Shrinking glaciers, glaciers around the world have on average been losing ice since the 70s in some areas. That is reducing the amount of available fresh water. We're seeing sea level rise, global sea level Sea levels rose 25 centimeters, or 9.8 inches, in the 19th to 20th centuries after 2,000 years of relatively little change. The pace of sea level rise has continued to increase in recent decades. Food supply, a hotter climate, can be good for crops. It lengthens the growing season, and more carbon dioxide can increase photosynthesis and bad for crops. Excess heat can also damage plants. The IPCC found that global warming was currently benefiting crops in some high-latitude areas, but that negative effects were becoming increasingly increasingly common worldwide. And then shifting species. Many land and marine species have had to shift their geographical ranges in response to warmer temperatures, so things are moving around. There are debated impacts. Here are a few other ways the Earth's climate has been changing, but scientists are still debating whether and how they are linked to global warming. Droughts have become more frequent and more intense in some parts of the world, such as the American Southwest, Mediterranean Europe, and West Africa, though it's hard to identify a clear global trend. In other parts of the world, such as the Midwestern United States and Northwestern Australia, droughts appear to have become less frequent, so there's still a fair bit of debate on how global warming has affected droughts so far. And hurricanes have clearly become more intense in the North Atlantic since 1970, the IPC says, but it's less clear whether global warming is driving this, and there doesn't yet seem to be any clear trend for tropical cyclones worldwide. So the sixth question here is what impacts will global warming have in the future? Well, it depends on how much the planet actually heats up. The changes associated with the 4 degrees Celsius of warming are expected to be more dramatic than the changes that are associated with 2 degrees of warming. Here's the basic rundown of some big impacts we can expect if global warming continues. And this is also from the IPCC um, reports. But we can expect hotter temperatures, higher sea level rise, heat waves, droughts and floods, hurricanes, heavier storm surges, and um, agriculture. In many parts of the world, the mix of increased heat and drought is expected to make food production more difficult. So um, the list goes on. Extinctions as the world warms, many plant and animal species will need to shift habitats at a rapid rate to maintain their current conditions. And then long-term changes. Most of the projected changes above will occur in the 21st century, but temperatures keep rising after that if greenhouse gas levels aren't stabilized. That increases the risk of more drastic long-term shifts. Um, number seven, is it dangerous to have more than two degrees of global warming? So why did I think there were only six? We've got nine here. So stick with me. We'll get through these. But number seven, is it dangerous to have more than two degrees of warming? Most of the world's nations have promised to avoid dangerous interference if the Earth's most of the world's nations have promised to avoid dangerous interference in the Earth's climate system. That's often taken to mean preventing global average temperatures from rising more than two degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. The two degree limit has a long tangled history. By some accounts, it was pushed by a German advisory panel back in the early 1990s who argued that letting temperatures rise from more than two degrees would bring us outside the temperature range that allowed human civilization to flourish in the first place. Subsequent research detailed a range of adverse impacts that would occur if temperatures rose more than 2 degrees Celsius, from increased risks of severe weather to adverse impacts on agriculture. Still, by its nature, the 2 degree limit is arbitrary. Any single limit would be. 
Sometimes scientists have noted that we could see a range of significant impacts long before we hit 2 degrees Celsius. Coral reefs could start dying, and as we just read from Chasing Coral, looks like they are dying. Or tiny island nations like Tuvalu could get swallowed by the rising seas. Conversely, other impacts such as declining crop yields in the United States might not happen until we go above the threshold. Deciding how to weigh that is all a political judgment as much as a scientific one. But for now, the international climate negotiations tend to center around that 2 degrees number. Uh, number 8, what happens if the worlds heat up more drastically, say to 4 degrees? Well, it says the risks of climate change would would rise considerably if temperatures rose above that 4 degrees Celsius, which is 7.2 degrees Fahrenheit, something that's possible if greenhouse gas emissions keep rising at their current rate. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or that IPCC, says that 4 degrees of global warming would lead to substantial species um, extinctions, large risks to global and regional food security, and the risk of irreversibly destabilizing Greenland's massive ice sheet. One huge concern, obviously, is food production. A growing number of studies suggest it would become significantly more difficult for the world to grow food with 3 degrees or 4 degrees Celsius of global warming. Countries like Bangladesh, Egypt, Vietnam, and parts of Africa could see large tracts of farmland made unusable by rising seas. And humans, obviously, could struggle to adapt with these conditions, the article goes on to say. So there's a quote that says, Given that uncertainty remains about the full nature and scale of impacts, the World Bank report said there is also no certain certainty that adaptation to a 4 degree, cel- 4 degree Celsius world is possible. His conclusion was blunt. The projected 4 degrees warming simply must not be allowed to occur. So how do we stop global warming? That's, uh, I guess this is a great place to end this segment, and this is what this podcast aims to do. Let's see what they offer. The world's nations would need to cut their greenhouse gas emissions by a lot, and even that wouldn't stop all global warming. For example, let's say we wanted to limit global warming to, to, to below 2 degrees Celsius. To do that, the IPCC has calculated that annual greenhouse gas emissions would need to drop at least 40-70% to 70% by mid-century. That's huge. That annual greenhouse gas emissions would need to drop at least 40-70%. to 70%. Emissions would then have to keep falling until humans were hardly emitting any extra greenhouse gases by the end of the century. We'd also likely need to pull some carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, which is possible. There are already technologies where um, they have developed systems to capture um, CO2 and actually can turn it into new products like plastic. So there's a, a product called Air Plastic. That's an amazing company actually here locally to uh, local here to me in Costa Mesa. Uh, might be something interesting to report on at one point, but they capture carbon and blow it into new plastics, basically, for lack of a scientific ex- explanation. The blue line below shows the path emissions would have to take uh, take for a better than even chance of staying below 2 degrees Celsius. So you see our sort of projected path going way up, and this blue line takes a low, low, low road that just almost seems um, unachievable, but hey, let's stay optimistic. By contrast, if emissions fall less sharply or or keep growing indefinitely, then the world would likely be on track for more warming. Cutting emissions that sharply is a daunting task. Right now, the world gets 87% of its primary energy from fossil fuels. Fossil fuels are known to be one of the primary drivers of the huge spikes in emissions that we see. So that's oil and gas and coal. 
So by contrast, just 13% of the world's primary energy is low carbon. A little bit of wind and solar power, some nuclear power plants, but a bunch of hydroelectric dams. That's one reason why global emissions keep rising 80 keep rising each year because of that 87% number. To stay below 2 degrees Celsius, that would all need to change radically. By 2050, the IPCC notes the world would need to triple or even quadruple the share of clean energy it uses and keeps scaling up after thereafter. Second, we would have to get dramatically more efficient at using energy in our homes, building in cars, and stop cutting down forests and reduce emissions from agriculture and from industrial processes like cement manufacturing. The IPCC also notes that this task becomes even more dif difficult the longer we put it off because carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases will keep piling up in the atmosphere in the meantime and the cuts necessary to stay below the two degree limit become even more severe. So this is one of the longest um, shows we've done. I'll end this article here and these were two articles that I think were great. But the point being here that we need to keep pushing for change and I think as individual consumers, as individual brand lovers and product lovers, that it's important for us to choose and support brands, businesses, and companies that are on board with this, that are doing something different and even making a small commitment to this change and at least even having an understanding of it because as you can see, the amount of work that is necessary is huge. So every little bit can, can count. And I know it seems overwhelming, especially when you're on your own out there buying the things that you need for your personal life or your personal needs or, um, you know, or for your family. But if we're not taking steps, if we're not looking for the products and the brands that help support um, this change and this movement, then we could be in really big trouble. And sustainability and better business isn't just reserved for the small, expensive boutique brands. Big, major companies that any one of us might shop at are doing great things. So the Nikes of the world, Ikea, Walmart, Target, these are all companies that have big sustainability initiatives and are actually doing some surprising things. So my job here is to continue to highlight those stories and make it feel like together we can really contribute to change and can um, we can do this. So let's not be overwhelmed, but let's stay informed and let's you know get out there and know who is doing what and know that every little bit really counts. So have a great day. Visit these two articles to learn more. There are a lot of great a lot of great links in there and a lot of great research that is linked, especially on Vox. Vox does a great job of breaking things down and explaining it. So that was a lot of information. I hope it wasn't too much. Enjoy the rest of your day. Don't be overwhelmed. Let's have fun, but let's be conscious and um, change-making consumers and uh, parts of this economy, this global economy that we're in. All right, that's it. I'm out for now. Check back soon for more updates on the Underswell.